I'm Evan Gertner. You're listening to Grace on Tap, a podcast that's devoted to the reformation of the Lutheran uh, church and documents and history and, and all of that jazz. <laughs> and all that jazz. Hi, I'm Mike Yeagley, uh, and uh, it's great to be with you again. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about the, the, this is our second episode, actually our third episode on the Augsburg Confession. The first episode, we talked about the, some of the background, some of the, the history, the context that this is all happening in. Uh, the, then the second episode, we covered the first 21 articles of the Augsburg Confession in uh, pretty, pretty quick there. Um, and then this episode, we're going to be covering the last seven of the articles of the Augsburg Confession. And these are the articles that were uh, the most contentious, we'll say, between the Lutherans of 1530 and, and, the Catholic, and the Roman Catholics. And these are the articles that kind of have the real world application to them. So um, as we go through these articles, you'll hear issues that are probably still in time uh, showing the difference between Lutherans and Catholics. For instance, the first article we're gonna look at is referencing the distribution of the body and blood of Christ to the laity. Should they receive both the bread and the wine, the, both the body and the blood, or should only the priests get the blood and the laity only get the bread? I well, think I only is too many, but you get the idea. Yeah, and, and actually, I think this is resolved now, where it, uh, you know, when I go to Catholic churches, uh, they have both the body and the blood. But when I was a kid, which was a while ago, um, the you know they only had the, the the body for you know and you know the blood was was reserved for the priest even then there are still a, a number of Roman Catholics who their own habit will be as they go to take the Eucharist will be to only take the body of Christ yeah and so article 22 make references to the command of our Lord the long history and church tradition to support the practice of distribution of both the body and blood of Christ the laity and so this way that they're going to handle this article and the other articles that are in these uh, disputed matters is kind of the same practice we should have to any disputed practice that's in the church today. Look at what the scriptures say. Uh, look at what church tradition is, but don't slavishly hold on to church tradition. Hold on to that which agrees with the scripture. And look to what is helpful for good order. And that which causes uh, disputes and disagreements and is not supported by scripture set it aside. But those things that are supported by Scripture, keep it. And a, a great example of that way of approaching things is the next article, which is Article 23, The Marriage of Priests. When, when you actually read the Augsburg Confession, it starts off talking about you know, what Paul says about you know, marriage. Uh, it talks about um, how God instituted marriage in Genesis. Uh, how you know? So it starts out with scripture, just like Evan was just saying. It, it begins by grounding itself in scripture, and then it went into the history. It, it talks a little bit about the history in there, and it'll say uh, this pope didn't like the you know disagreed with it, and at this point the we, they almost got rid of it, and, and so forth. So they talk about the church history with with the with the with marriage. And then they, they lay out their position. So it's, it's exactly what you were talking about, where you, know, you start out with scripture, you bring in tradition, which tradition is just another name for history, church history. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you, then, you follow, then you finish it up with your, your real ar- argument. And that was, you know, and so there's, there's, a, you know, 
the, the additional thing that they're talking about here is they talk a lot about just the burden it is for the, the priests of that era of, of, and of today. I mean, I, I have a lot of friends who are priests um, and they're great guys. Uh, they would never complain about, uh, about the, the burden of, of celibacy. I, uh, you know, I've never heard any of them complain about it, but I can only imagine how hard that is. Now, maybe they can't complain about it, but I, I was friends with an Episcopalian priest who had been formerly a Roman Catholic. I said, why, why did you make the switch? And he says, I fell in love. Uh, yeah. yeah. It, it wasn't really for him that much theology. <laughs> it was more that he fell in love. And, I, yeah, and I, have, I have Lutheran pastors who are also former Roman Catholic priests who did the same thing. And it's like, I, and, and when you talk to him, it's funny. I was talking to a, one friend of mine, and he's saying, he's like, yeah, we believe almost the same stuff. It's like we don't believe, <laughs> but he's, you know, but you know, I had to do the marriage thing. I fell in love, and you know. So anyway, uh, you want to move on to the next one? Yeah, Article Twenty Four is titled "The Mass," uh, and this article is showing that the main thing that needs to change in the worship service is what is happening in the view of the people, and. We need to see the Lord's Supper as a language of gift and proclamation of the gospel, not a sacrifice uh, that needs to be redone and redone and redone and redone. And one of the things that Luther, and Luther talks about a lot, Melanchthon talks about here in the Augsburg Confession, is, is all the problems with, with having the Mass become a sacrifice. And then there was this, and again, going into the history, he talks about the history of Okay, well, so then they agreed that the Mass was a sacrifice that they did over and over again. Well, what if you have, you know, 50 people that this sacrifice is being given for? Wouldn't it be better if each one of them had their own and if they each paid for their own? And then you get private Masses. And then masses. you get private Masses. And so, you know, you had all these private Masses where people were paying for these private Masses. And it was just one problem after another, all growing out of this this idea of the of the mass being a sacrifice, and you know, so this is a, this is where Melanchthon looks back into history and says, you know, it wasn't always like this, and and you know, w this is this is something that grew, and it's it's sort of a bad seed, and you know, in, in Luther and Melanchthon's position is that it's a bad seed that bore bad fruit. I think that's where sometimes shifts in history happen, like say, the Renaissance and Enlightenment or postmodernism. All these moments come is where we start to look back and see our history is not always the way it's been. Uh, we look at something that's going on right now and we realize that what's happening can be deconstructed or changed uh, because we're not beholden to just the way it's been done for the last couple hundred years. We can look again at the way something's being done. And so here at the Reformation, you've got the printing press, you've got this uh, movement by Erasmus for humanism back to the sources, this movement of being able to look at the scriptures and use the scriptures as the critical lens to look at history means we don't have to do things the way they've all, what we thought was always the way they've been. And instead we can realize they've only been done this way for a couple hundred years. Let's go back a little bit further. Now we find the authority for why we do what we do in the church is no longer because that's the way we did it. They now find the authority is the word of God. And in the word of God, they find the mass has to be a thing of public proclamation that's believed by faith and not a sacrifice that's done that's uh, then given as reward to you just by observing the act. 
Right, right. There's, there's so much, and that section on the Mass, if I remember right, when I was reading through the Augsburg Confession, it's a pretty long section that he one goes on. Sections. One of the real longer sections, and, and there's a lot there. Um, and we're not going to spend a whole lot more time on it, but that's, it's sort of that structure of starting off with the Word, going into some of the history, and then laying out you know, where the Lutheran position stands from there. Article 25 is about confession. And, and this uh, article should be treated in connection with Article 11, uh, where confession and repentance are explained. And here, encouragement is to see confession maintained in the churches as a great benefit to the troubled soul and a wonderful opportunity to proclaim absolution. It is not something that should be done in the church to burden the conscience, like you have to do this and you have to remember all these things and say it just this way. But instead, for the person who's troubled, this is an opportunity to hear the words of absolution. One of the great things in the, in the Augsburg Confession that Melanchthon writes is he says that they teach that when you hear the words of absolution, it is as if God himself is speaking to you. That, this, that, that by the authority vested in that, that pastor or priest, when he says your, your sins are forgiven, you can rest assured that you know that your sins are forgiven by God himself and that, that you can finally move forward and leave those behind you. And, and it's that faith in the word of God that, that Melanchthon is really hammering on in this one with the confession. And not all the actions and not all the things that are working around it, but it's that, that, that firm confidence that God himself is coming to you and saying your sins are are forgiven. And the nearness to this act of promise is not found just by being an observer, like if you're at a church and observing the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The nearness to the Word of God is found in that internal act of faith that is supplied by the Holy Spirit. You know, going, uh, going back to my Catholic background, I always did the, you know, we used to go into the little room and the, the, uh, the confessional. Mm -hmm. And I used to have to say, you know, forgive me, Father, for my, I have sinned, uh, and I used to make stuff up. And then, you know, because I didn't know what to say. I was a kid. kid you, I, I was a kid. trying to follow some sort of pattern that you've been taught. Right. And uh, I always hated it. I always hated it. And, and, you know, it was when I became a Lutheran, and I realized the power of those words, and I, I became more, I wanted to go back and try it, and, and you know, and try the personal forgiveness. Um, but the structure of it, I, I, I guess I, I was still remained a little uncomfortable with it. Maybe it was because I was <laughs> bringing back all those memories from when right. I was a kid. But, you know, I, I, I think Luther always talked about how great that was, that, that personal word from, from a brother in Christ saying, or a sister in Christ saying, your sins are forgiven. You know, there's the, and I think Jim Nestingen talks a lot about that, the importance of us forgiving, you know, being, being lavish with our forgiveness. You know, because God is lavish with his forgiveness. You know, that we, we, we ought to do that too. And we're, we're way too, I don't know, too stingy forgiving one another. And that's, that's one of the things that um, the Lutheran view, by pulling away, to stripping away all those works, and it's just the word, and you have confidence that that word is coming from Christ, there's, there's something there. That, that we can hold on to. And so that's Article 25, 26. Article 26, there's a different names for this one. Uh, there's the distinction of foods, distinction of meats, I think I saw on one translation. All sorts of different, and they're all terrible translations. I, I, I like the translation 
that says of the doctrines and ordinances of men. I think that's a that's a much it's about better more than just meat. Yeah, when you actually read it, it's not about food and it's not about meat. It's it's about festivals and it's about all these extra things that sort of grew up around the church. These these extra ordinances that you you have to go and do this and you have to go and do that. Human traditions that rise in church practice to the same level as doctrine. And the notion being that if you do this, then you're good. If you don't do this, you're bad. And you have something other than the word of God being the dividing sword between righteousness and unrighteousness. And instead it becomes the observance of these human ordinances. Yeah, the burden, you, you, it's almost like there's this desire to remove the burden from Christ and put it on our own shoulders. It's a very natural desire to be in a group and want to fit in. And when you do something wrong, feel out of place, feel clumsy um, and, and embarrassed. And, and so you can imagine someone attending a festival, a parade, and, and seeing that as, well, that's what it means to be a part of the community. I do this. And if you if you've ever been to a church and you stand up at the wrong time when everyone else is sitting down or everyone else is sat down but you're in kind of a front row and you haven't noticed that, it's incredibly embarrassing. Well, now take that feeling of embarrassment and flip it towards that feeling of fulfillment that you know when to sit, you know when to stand. Yeah. And it suddenly becomes this human ordinance of sit, stand, and, and do all these things. You get this thought, I belong. And they're saying that's an incredibly dangerous feeling of belonging because now it's rooted no longer in the love that you have from God, but now in what you've achieved. Right. So that's Article 26. Article 27 is the monastic vows. We had uh, several episodes on this one. This is in the 1510s to 1520s, an incredible difficult time for Luther and his associates that are professors and pastors and priests and monks and all these things because they're setting aside their vows and they have to come with some clear understanding of why they can reject a vow they've made. One of the clear things that's made in this section is how many people had made vows when they were not in a position to be able to be honest with their vow, children. And he even mentions uh, people who were of age, but they really didn't have any real understanding of what they were getting themselves into. They thought they were making a vow for uh, works righteousness and creating an existence that was going to be more perfect than just their civil living in society. And, and, you know, and especially, you know, people in their, uh, we'll say young, young folks, they might be over 18, but they, there's a tendency sometimes to get excited about stuff, uh, to really feel like you're part of something and, you know, you've got the answers now and, and you race forward and you go and do things and it doesn't always, it's not exactly what is meant for you long term but you know in that moment you were certain <laughs> that's where you're gonna go i know i've done that when i was a kid so since you don't listen to me you must hate me <laughs> 28 is about ecclesiastical power this is about church governance and the uh, role the papacy has to define the church and this article does not completely reject the papacy uh, it does show a, a desire for ecumenical relationships uh, they uh, Philip Melanchthon demonstrates that there is room for a pope who would function by the authority of the word and not seek civic authority or use the laws of the church with the equation that they're equal to divine authority. So for Luther, he could imagine a pope that helped lead the church as a pastor. And he said, and he's going to write this later when he's doing the small called uh, 
the small club leagues getting ready in 1537, 1538 to figure out how to go to the church council. And he writes the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope. And there he recognizes that this whole notion of what the Pope has become is not rooted in what the scriptures call for and in fact is the work of the Antichrist. But in 1530, he still imagines that a Pope that is a pastor, he could accept that. So one of the interesting things, if you get a chance to read through the Augsburg Confession in this section on ecclesiastical powers, uh, I don't think Melanchthon uses the word the estates uh, in there, but that's what he's talking about. And he's talking about how the Pope has placed himself in charge of both the civil estate and the uh, and the the religious estate, the the, the the estate of the church, at the head of both, and and the problems that that has, and that the you know basically Melanchthon is saying that you can't hold both the word the, the word and the sword, you, the the word of forgiveness and the sword, you know you you, you need to give up the sword to the civil authorities, and and so you know it's and the reason for that is because when the church assumes the role of the civil authority, it obscures the gospel. And, th and that's basically what Melanchthon's getting at. And I think he does actually say that, that this damages the gospel. And, and what, you know, as I was reading that, I was thinking about, you know, how difficult that must have been for the church of the Middle Ages to hear somebody threaten that. I think it was Pope Julius was called the warring pope. I mean, he, and he died in battle. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is this is a guy who was, and I thought it was Milan. I think he was going to battle with Milan, the city of Milan, and you know, it's like what, what, yes. I, you know, and so, I mean, that was such a huge part of the Church of the Middle Ages. And here you have Philip Melanchthon and all of the backers of the Augsburg Confession saying the Pope shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, yeah. So that is the Augsburg Confession. And now, the concluding paragraph, I'm just going to read some of it. It says, these are the chief articles that are regarded as controversial. For although many more abuses and errors could have been added, we listed only the principal ones in order to avoid prolixity and undue length. Well, I'm drinking to that. Prolixity? Prolixity. Yes. I had to look up that word, prolixity. It means uh, using too many words. <laughs> the, they, could the have, they could have used a few more words to, instead of prolixity, yeah, though. that's right. The others can easily be assessed in light of these. In the past, there were many complaints about indulgences, pilgrimages, and the misuse of the ban. Moreover, pastors had endless quarrels with monks about hearing confession, funerals, sermons on special occasions, and countless other matters. All these we have passed over, being as considerate as we could, so that the chief points at issue may be better discerned. So, they finished the Augsburg Confession by saying, there are lots of things we could have talked about. We talked about the stuff that was the most important. I was surprised that they kept indulgences off the list. You know, that I mean, that's where all of this started. If you go back to 1517, mm -hmm. I, I guess... I see indulgences as a symptom. And what they were trying to do with the articles they chose is to get to the things that were causing the disease rather than just nitpick at the, the symptoms. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think that, and I mean, when they start talking about penance, they start talking about confession, they start talking about forgiveness that's all about indulgences too you know and and so they they i can see where they it was just sort of surprising to me on first blush yeah. gee you know here i thought that was a big deal and now you got 50 pages to write about what is important about being a lutheran and you don't write about the opposition to indulgence so we're gonna have our beer break and uh for our beer today we have from midland brewing company 
Offer Harbor Ale, uh, Sailor's Delight, and it is named for a former shipping port near the northernmost point of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, Copper Harbor. It's exceptionally drinkable. I will attest to that. Uh, it has a sweet, toasty malt character. I will say yes to that. And a rich copper color. I don't know. I'm drinking it out of the can. I have no <laughs> idea what the color is. We have no idea. But we'll... Uh, now, I actually had... They, they have this... Uh, on their write-up, they talk about... Uh, prohibition. You know, when, I guess Michigan was the first state to ratify the 21st Amendment to repeal prohibition. And they're very proud of that fact. <laughs> so Midland Brewing Company, you have taught us a new historical lesson that we should have known before and we appreciate that. The next thing we want to do in this episode on the Augsburg Confession is now talk about what takes place after June 25th, 1530. So June 25th, 1530, the Augsburg Confession has been read, and now the Catholics that are there are going to devise their refutation, uh, their disagreement with it, and they're going to call it the confutatio, uh, confutation. And there is a group of people that are formed by the emperor to prepare the response. It is a large committee. Compeggio, the papal legate, uh, is a part of this team, and there are 19 to 24 people that are on it throughout the couple months that's being written, and they prepare the response. Now, on July 14th, uh, Charles V kind of looks at what this group is doing, and he says, how about we just have a church council, and we'll let that settle all the matters that are in dispute. And so Charles V has looked at this Augsburg Confession, looks at this large committee that doesn't seem to be really settling things, and he proposes a church council. And I, you have to, you know, when I first became a Lutheran, I think I might have mentioned this once before, but um, Charles V was really, you know, sort of put down by pastors when I was... The more a, we get, you realize how earnest he was. He just seeks the church to be united. Yeah, I mean, he really did, as I get to know Charles V, um, yeah, you know, he does some things that, of course, I'm not too fond of, but overall, he seems like he's working in good faith, and that's that's really saying something uh, in this era. You know, for for I mean, when you look at the some of the other players in this, he's one of the one of the few that I yeah he he's there on the Catholic side, but he he seems to be working in good faith. He's aiming for unity. It might be just for political purposes. He needs this Augsburg, uh, this Diet of Augsburg, to be successful. So he calls for a council, and Compeggio, the papal legate, he says, you don't have the authority to ask for a council, and we're not going to have one because you asked for it. And if we have one right now, people will think we're having it because you asked for it. And that was sort of interesting to me because it's sort of like, you know, this, and there's a couple of times that this kind of thing happens with uh, Charles and the Pope, where Charles wants to do something that would be helpful to the Catholic position, and the Pope says no, you know, because I think a council, if, if Charles called a council at this point, it, it could have resolved all this, it would have strengthened, avoided some schism, avoided schism, strengthened the position of Charles, and ultimately strengthened the position of the Pope, you know, it would have made the Pope stronger because it would have, if you avoid the schism, you have all of Christ, Christendom joining together, and, and so, you know, there's, you know, Charles is trying to really grow something here and the the the, the papal legate uh, Compeggio 
says no because he does not want to give up that power. He doesn't want to empower uh, empower Charles to say to call a council. So while they're trying to figure out is there going to be a council or not, Eck, Cochleus, and Fabry, who were three leading kind of writers in opposition to the Lutherans. For 12 years, they have been responding quickly to whenever the Lutherans say something, Eck, Cochleus, and Fabry right back. Now, I, I want to, you know, Eck especially, we've studied Eck a little bit, mm-hmm. oh, and, and he is not above misdirection. He is not above um, even, you know, mischaracterizing, not knowingly mischaracterizing the other side. Well, just before the Augsburg Confession, he had written a document called The Corner of the Four Heresies of Luther. And he knew better, and he knew better. He was formerly a friend of Luther, going back when they were in college together or something. You know, um, they, they, they were drinking buddies before Luther became Luther, you know. And, and, it was, and so they knew each other, um, and, and it really became this, you know, it almost was personal, yes. it seems like. Now, this first draft that Echoclius and Fabry write, it's described by some in terms of wagon loads of documents. It included many attacks against Luther. Charles ruled those out of order since Luther was not present at Augsburg. So the rest of July required editorial work, and the emperor's advisors told the committee to cut a third off the first draft. The Catholic side, the Roman Catholic side, you know, going, they went at this like an army going to battle. Every inch, they fought for every inch. They did not want to give up anything. And it was, it, they just made it exceedingly difficult. Slow, trudging, every edit was an argument. Right. There's four more revisions in the remaining weeks of July. August 3rd, they have a text now that they're going to have the secretary read out loud, just as on June 25th, 1530, the Augsburg Confession had been read out loud. The confutation on August 3rd is read out loud. Interestingly, the secretary read some sections that were supposed to have been erased from the final draft, but he was given an earlier copy, and so he read them anyway. So it could have been a shorter day. I'm sure it was just Could you enthralling. just imagine the writers? <laughs> like, they're like, oh, why is he reading from that draft? Why is he doing that? Uh, chances are everybody else was asleep, though, yeah, so nobody probably right. noticed. Well, <laughs> one of the things that frustrated the Lutherans quite a bit is they wanted a written copy because they wanted to be able to respond back. But Charles V was not going to give them a written copy because he said there's nothing to respond to. This is the answer. There's no negotiation. In the document, it has these different claims of authority. Uh, and Charles wanted to, to require the Lutherans to accept the document even before hearing it, and also requiring that they not write any further replies. But what was interesting is this is another example where Compeglio, you know, would not yield to Charles because he didn't want to give Charles that authority. Charles wanted to speak in the name of the church or make the documents authoritative. And Capeggio said that as a civil leader, you don't have the authority to speak for the church. And this is one of those weird things about we were talking about a few minutes ago. The Roman Catholic leadership at that time said that they had both civil authority and church authority. And, but the civil authorities had no church authority. They're coming down on, on Charles because he's trying to, at this moment, to be helpful to assume some level of church authority. They come down on him over that, but they would not yield any of their civil authority. So August 3rd, it's read. August and September, there is a committee that's formed by Charles. It has 14 people on it, seven from the Lutheran position, 
and seven from the Catholic position. And uh, then it stalled. Charles reduced the team even smaller, and it now included a canon lawyer and two theologians and uh, some other people from each side. So it went from like 48 people, 24 on one side, 24 on another side, down to 14, down to seven, and they are having success. The group took up the contentious issues. They talked about the sacrifices, the sacrifice of the mass, the marriage of the clergy, and it appeared to many people that there was going to be compromise. But then they reached the last article of the Augsburg Confession. The Article of Authority. The Article, article 28 on ecclesiastical authority. And the Roman Catholic Church would not compromise on church governance. And at that point, the negotiations broke off. Just think how close they were. I, I, I know. And that, so the, the Catholic theologians, the Lutheran theologians, they were finding compromise. They were finding unity. They were like, all right, this, that. Uh, you give a little of this, I'll give a little of that. Uh, we'll find unity here. You meant that. Oh, I thought you meant this. But finally it broke down because the Catholic Church would not budge on the role and authority of the Pope. What's interesting, and uh, as if you follow Melanchthon's life from this point forward, and we we mentioned he he wrote, rewrote the Augsburg Confession over and Kept over and trying to find that moment of compromise and find yeah and and so he would give up a little bit here and give up a little bit there trying to find that common ground again with the Roman Catholics he had been so close he had, um, he was in that room how close it could be I, I I can only imagine where he 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 must have gone through the rest of his life thinking we could have done it we could have done it and and. It just didn't happen. September 22nd, so now June 25th, the Augsburg Confession was read. August 3rd, the computation was read. They negotiate August and September. They stall. They don't get anywhere. Finally, the negotiations break off over this conversation about ecclesiastical power. September 22nd, Charles V announces that the Augsburg Confession has been refuted on the basis of Scripture, and he gives the Lutherans until April 15, 1531, to submit to his judgment. He gives them several months to come to a decision to compromise. Or not compromise, to give in. Right, right. So Chancellor Brooke uh, objected to that as a bad faith effort. They, they should have just broken it off right then. No need for a threat on you know April 31st or whatever that or April whatever April the April 15th April 15th or April So 15th. people are anticipating war is going to begin. They leave the Diet of Augsburg. Everyone is essentially going to their corners, uh, grabbing their swords, um, their pikes, getting their knights, uh, getting everything ready. And uh, Charles V finds out he cannot take military action to enforce his expectations that the Lutherans submit to him because he has to keep enough of his military on the border uh, to prevent the Turk army coming up the Danube and he has to keep enough of his army on the border with France because they want to encroach on him so he's got two fronts that he's got to keep a garrison at that he can't afford to go to war against the Germans so in 1531 negotiates a stalemate with the Lutherans at the Nuremberg Armistice. He agrees. Now, Campeggio didn't want him to ask for this, but he agrees in 1531 to ask for a council of the church to be called. So the Lutheran church spends the 1530s with some independence. And Charles V says, you guys can, essentially it is, keep doing what you're doing, 
because and, I trust a council is going to resolve. This. Eventually, this will be resolved by a council, and and so you know, let's just sort of put a pause on everything. And so the Lutheran Church grew a lot during that period. They grew a lot, and uh, they also not only grow religiously, but they grow in military strength. The first seven signatures on the Augsburg Confession form an alliance, a military alliance called the Small Called League. Um, this league grew throughout the 1530s until um, a majority of German governments were embraced by some form of evangelical reform and unity with the Small Called League. Luth, uh, Melanchthon goes forward, you know, after this all, after the negotiations fall, fall apart, and he, he writes his apology. Now, his apology, his initial, what the, basically his rebuttal to the confutation, is a, uh, it, it's, it, it basically is uh, uh, from his notes. He doesn't have, they didn't remember, they didn't give him a, a copy of what the confutation said. So he's just sort of what he remembered, what he wrote down. And don't forget, what was the spoken version was wrong. It had a bunch of things in there that wasn't supposed to be. And so he's writing to... He writes his first draft to the Apology that fall. Then that winter they get a copy, a written copy of the computation, and he revises it to realize that some areas where he thought that there was a need for something, he erases that. But there's another section that he says, you know, I need more here, especially Article 4 on justification. It's the big meat of the Apology. Um, this is the Augsburg Confession. You will find on some Lutheran churches their foundational stone of the year of when that church stone was laid. And then it'll say UAC. So like say UAC 1903. Okay. And the UAC stands for Unaltered Augsburg Confession. Yeah, because Melanchthon does change the Augsburg Confession. He thought of it as his personal document. Um, but for the Lutheran princes and theologians that signed it, they saw it as a public confession of the church. And they didn't think Melanchthon had the authority on his own to change it. No. And so in 1580, when the Book of Concord was published, it was very important for them to include the original version that was read on June 25th. And in fact, they included both the German version and the Latin version, because both were presented on June 25th. Okay. But the Germans wanted it in German, and the theologians thought that there was some nice specificity in the Latin version. So both the German version and the Latin version were included in 1580. Well, I think that does it for our this episode on the Augsburg Confession and our series on the Augsburg Confession. It's been a good time. Today you might have heard the sounds of dogs or cars go by. Uh, we are recording um, in my backyard. Before uh, we pressed record on the podcast, we had a brought. Uh, some baked beans and potato chips. We had a, a 4th of July style picnic to celebrate the independence of the Lutheran Church. Uh, with the <laughs> That's right. So I'm uh, really glad you were able to join us. So this is a, another COVID, a much better COVID uh, episode. I, I really enjoyed this. It's good to, good to be together again, drinking beer and, and talking theology. Physically distant, but socially near is always good. That's, that is absolutely. Well done. Cheers. Cheers.